Our reading this morning will be the first 15 verses of Genesis 3. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God, Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is, this, what is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's go before the Lord in prayer as we prepare to hear his word this morning. Lord, as we look at your living word, Give us life-seeing eyes and ears and hearts to receive your truth. For your word is truth. Bring to life any and all who are dead in their transgressions and sins. And we sinners who have been made alive, sanctify us in the truth, we pray. For your word is truth. Christmas season has arrived. Decorations are up. I love this season. I love lights. love decorations. Our house is filled with them. Um, I mean, generally speaking, um, I believe that um, most, believe it or not, um, get excited around this time of year and they enjoy the season. But for Christians, it's a very important holiday. Very enjoyable, yes, but incredibly meaningful. Very significant. So over the next three weeks, today, in the next two weeks, 
Um, we're going to give our attention to the story. Not just the Christmas story, but the much bigger story that Christmas is a key part of. And when I say story, friends, we're not talking about some fictional made-up account like Santa Claus. But the story of what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen because of Christmas. Now, it may sound a little cliche, but um, history is his story. History is God's story, um, the creator of all. He spoke, and the universe leapt into existence. He created man in his image, and in his image he created the male and female. The only creatures that bear the image of Almighty God are human beings. Humanity fell in Adam. And God had a plan from before creation to redeem mankind back to himself. That's what the Bible is all about, friends. That's what the story is all about. That is the grand story of hope, apart from which times past, present, and future would be a, a very bleak and hopeless situation. Most of the world lives hopelessly. We're gathered together because we have hope. This church is called Pacific Hope. We just happen to be on the, specific, on the Pacific. We have hope, and our hope is in Christ. He's at the center of the story. Christmas is at the center of the story full of hope. Now, um, if I were to give you a, a Christmas quiz, just answer this in, in your mind. If I were to ask you, what was the reason the Son of God appeared, how would you answer? The answer's in the back of the book. The answer's in the back of the book. It's in 1 John 3 that tells us the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Revelation 12 refers to him as the ancient, the ancient serpent who's called the devil, and Satan. So the, the problem at the front of the book, for which we'll look at this morning, is fully restored, resolved in the back of the book. The Bible, the story, the grand story of redemption. It all comes through the promise, which we'll look at today, the arrival, and the triumph of Christmas. The promise, the arrival, and the triumph of of Christmas, that is the seed promised, the offspring promised, right here, Genesis 3 and verse 15. Genesis 3.15 is the first promise of the coming of the Son of God. It is the first Christmas promise. That is, subsequent to the fall of the human race, into sin and into death, God announces what scholars refer to as the proto-evangelium, that is the first good news. Genesis 3, verse 15. And the whole Bible, we could say, is a or an extended footnote 
of this verse. It's the key to all Old Testament texts as God begins to unfold the promise of Genesis 3, verse 15, finding its fulfillment in the New Testament. That's why we see hostility throughout, as we'll see. Opposition to the one true God, the way of his people. Now, um, the last Adam, or second Adam, as Jesus is referred to in 1 Corinthians 15, um, is promised here in Genesis 3 to undo what the first Adam succumbed to. to wage warfare, to win the victory over sin and death, where the consequence of sin is death. He is the seed of the woman of which God speaks as he judges the serpent in verse 15. That is, he will crush the serpent's head, although the serpent will sink its fangs into his flesh. Before we look at the account, first, a word to any and all. If you happen to be here and you read the opening chapters of Genesis as an allegory and not historical reality, that is to say there are some professing Christians who who have gullibly bought into, for instance, um, Darwin's theory of evolution. So they refer to this as, well, it's theistic evolution. Look, if you're going to believe in evolution, don't blame it on God, period. Okay? Don't do that. Others claim the book of Genesis is not historical until chapter 12, and therefore conclude it's allegorical up and to Genesis 12. And they, like Eve, are deceived. Fact, fact, you will not correctly understand the gospel without a correct understanding of how and where it begins, and it begins in Genesis 3, verse 15. So this is for you if you fall into that category of gullibility. Here is a serious consideration for you. If the first Adam is only an allegory. This Adam here in Genesis 3, a metaphorical fable, then by all logic, so is the second Adam. Jesus, the Christ. And that would make Jesus a false witness who was either deceived or is a deceiver. Okay, are we clear on that? In other words... A false start to the story produces a false grasp of the gospel. And a wrong understanding of Jesus, who is the Christ, the last Adam, the second man, who comes to redeem everything back to God the Father. Don't make that mistake. So, let's look at the problem at the beginning of the book at the end of the book, answers. After creating Adam in his image, Imago Dei, 
God placed him in his earthly temple garden. That's the picture of the garden. It's a temple garden. Where humanity would dwell in the very presence of Almighty God, and Adam's task was to tend to, to enjoy, and extend to completion God's temple garden. That was his delegated responsibility. And he was to multiply with Eve. They were to fill the earth. Exercising, friends, exercising dominion over what? All of creation. Again, all of creation in the name of Yahweh. And is made in the image of God. He's given this task. And here they are to dwell in the midst of God's generosity. Everything is lovely. Everything is beautiful. It is all theirs to enjoy. Everything that God made, God said, it is very good. Walking with God in the cool of the day, having close fellowship and friendship with their creator in this garden temple, this historic, real person named Adam. Enter Satan, a created being, a powerful, powerful, beautiful angel, the foremost rebel of heaven, the ancient dragon of old. He had other plans. We don't know exactly when it was that he rebelled, but he was thinking if he could disrupt the completion of this temple garden somehow, some way, that he would be able to postpone his judgment day. So he moves on to the scene of Eden, attempting to terminate the relationship between Almighty God and those made in his image. Angels are not made in the image of God. Human beings are. He wants to disrupt it. He wants to destroy the image of God in man. He wants to strip away, his attempt will be to strip away their covering of original righteousness, and that righteousness was God's righteousness. Made in the image of God. Now, we still bear the image of God, amen? Do we realize this? All people, for that matter, believer or unbeliever alike, bear the image of God, although as Calvin put it, it is a frightful deformity. So, having been given dominion over creation, chapter 1 and in verse 28... Look at chapter 2 and verse um, 16. And the Lord commanded, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So here we see the gift of life, the gift of abundance, the tree of life is there, verse 9. And it comes with a warning, it comes with a test, a test of their trust, a test of their obedience to him, their creator, a kind of probation, if you will. Obedience equals everlasting life as God's image bearers. Disobedience will result in God's curse, that is, death. 
including all of whom Adam represents. He is the head of creation. He, he represents all of humanity thereafter, including those of us sitting here this morning. And it's because of Adam's rebellion in Eden that we all face death. The consequence of sin is death. We're in Adam. We were born in Adam. That's why you don't have to teach children how to sin. It comes naturally. Amen? It's because of Adam's rebellion that all human relationships are fractured. It's because of Adam's rebellion we all die. Adam's rebellion is the reason that paradise in Eden was lost. And now we are on a pilgrim journey through the wilderness of Nod. The Hebrew word for, the Hebrew root word for wandering shows up in Genesis 4. We're pilgrims now. And there's a profound alienation that has taken place between God and his creatures made in his image. So here, Satan enters the garden by way of this, of this creature, this serpent. We don't know what it, exactly it was like before the fall. Uh, but um, here, Adam, the one to whom all earthly dominion was delegated, did nothing about it. Nothing. And allows himself to now be dominated by God's arch enemy. That's the scene. Notice, the first question in the Bible comes from this Satan-indwelt serpent. Notice, it's presented as a subtle attack that challenges what? The authority of God. Right there. That is his word. Verse 1. Did God actually say? It's the same, that's the same question raised in your minds today. Has God really said? You believe this Adam is really, was really a human being? So now the woman that came from out of the man is drawn into the enemy's scheme, okay? Implying that God's graciousness isn't really that gracious because there is a prohibition here. She goes on and she, she attempts to edit God. She edits God here. Well, we, we may not even touch it. God didn't say anything about touching it. He said, don't eat it. We may not eat it. We may not even touch it lest we die. So notice the focus, here comes the enemy, and the focus is on the divine prohibition and not God's graciousness that allows them to eat from every other tree within the garden. The focus is on the prohibition and not the blessing. Same tactic used to this day by this ancient serpent. So notice the ancient serpent succeeds in obscuring Grace with what? Law. Same lie to this day. What's Christianity? Oh, it's a list of rules you can't do. It's a list of stuff you can't do. That's the lie. Rather than the blessing of abundant life, everlasting life in Christ. How many times have you, you know, I've heard my neighbors when they find out, going back years, you know, that I'm a Christian and 
like I'll be doing something that they think Christians shouldn't do. From drinking coffee to listening to rock and roll, whatever. I thought you were a Christian. Well, I am. Well, I thought Christians didn't, and then fill in the blank. That's Christianity in their mind. That's the lie. So here now, causing doubt within this woman's mind as regards the word of God, like a shark in blood-infested waters, he moves in for the kill. So he attacks the authority of God's word, and now he contradicts the instructions of God. Verse 4, notice, you will not surely die. God said you'll die. You, You won't die. You will not die. As a matter of fact, God knows when you do eat, your eyes will be opened and you'll be just like God. He doesn't want you to be like him. You won't die. This is a trick. So he attacks God's authority, and then he moves to attack the character of God. God is not as gracious as you think. He's holding back. Same lie to this day. So the promise of eternal life, there, the tree of life, is no longer the concern for this woman, but notice, it's the lie of withheld enlightenment. That's now her focus withheld enlightenment. Not the blessings that are there. So the the lie really is life and enlightenment come through a suicide. That's it. The lie here, it goes unchallenged. Adam should have stood up here. He doesn't say a word. So notice, the lie goes unchallenged. Words now give way to that which is luscious to the eyes. That which is appealing to the eyes. Here, lust for that which is forbidden rises up in the heart of those made in the image of God. So the delight to the eyes turns into partaking of that which is forbidden. So the question raised becomes a lie. The lie becomes open rebellion. Life gives way to sin, death, and shame. You know, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, that Adam was not deceived. What do you think? You think Paul's talking about an allegorical figure? No, I don't think so. He says Adam was not deceived. It was the woman who was deceived. The woman was deceived. Adam was not ignorantly duped. The woman was. Adam blatantly transgressed. This is an act of treason. Sproul calls it cosmic treason, for which we're all guilty of. You know, this is what he says to himself. He's saying to himself, I want to be like God. I want to be like God. I want to know good and evil. I will determine my own destiny. I'll make my own rules. 
After all, I'm Lord, smaller case L, of this garden. I've been given dominion of this place. I'm the master of my domain. Same lie perpetuated to this day. Every human sin, every human tear, every worry, every anxiety, every calamity, every lie, every deception was born here in this garden at that moment. Enlightenment never came. Curses did. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Their original righteousness, gone. Gone. The glory associated with the divine image of God vanished at this moment. That cloak, whatever it was like, disappeared. Shame now takes its place. Shame. And in response, we see here the pitiful act of trying to cover their shame with created things. Sound familiar? This is the same principle behind all pagan and false religious systems to this day, foolishly thinking, foolishly assuming that you can cover your spiritual nakedness by your own fabricated glory. Most specifically, in our day, it's works righteousness. If I can just do enough good, I'm a good person. I don't do this, that, and the other. And I do this stuff. I'm a good person. Works righteousness. Man-made loin cloths that are taken from what? Creation. That God spoke into existence. So, as shamed as they are in front of one another, notice, when they hear God, they try to run from God. They hear his voice. Now, the joy of his presence, the joy of the presence of their almighty creator has been turned into the fear of his holiness. And ever since, men and women have been hiding from God and they fear, I should say, they loathe his presence. Make no mistake about it. Why? You know, people say, well, they're seeking God. No, they're not. The Bible's clear. No one seeks after God, and this is the reason why. If, they're come, you know, if you're thinking back that, well, there was a time I was seeking God, well, let me tell you something. The reason you were seeking him is because he was seeking you, and he sought you out, and he was calling you to himself, and you responded according to his grace. That's why. Your nature's fallen. You're an Adam. You're not going to seek God. You're going to run from him. You're going to try to hide from him. Foolish attempt. They loathe God. So in our day, we, we invent stories in an attempt to erase God, i.e. evolution. 
Most people aren't foolish enough to fall into that, so they try to recreate God. And guess whose image? Their own image. I say God is like, and then you fill in the blank. Well, to me, he's like this. Not according to Scripture, he's not like that. And then we move on, and in our unrighteousness, we end up worshiping trees, animals, and creeping things, and then global warming, or Greenpeace, or PETA becomes their creed. That's my religion. I worship creation. Look at Romans 1, verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Friends, that is the world that invades my soul and yours. It's the grip of creaturely things, the temptation. Amen? Can you relate to this? But by grace alone. We will bow the knee to things that God has made rather than the God who's made all things. Think about it. People bow down before all kinds of things. We are tempted to bow down before things, and everything that man's hands fashion comes from the earth God made. So it's all from him. We're called to worship him and not creaturely things. So we see that this goes all the way back to the fall. They try to cloak themselves in creation. Doesn't work. Our lives testify that this is history and not mythology, friends. Can I get a witness here? The deepest fear in the heart of any man or woman outside of Christ, that is fallen mankind, it's echoed all the way back here from Eden. And it's this. If I give myself to God, if I give myself to his glory, I will no longer be the master of my own soul. I will no longer be the captain of my destiny. I would rather die than bow. And without grace, you'll never bow. And all is lost, and forever, when you die, you will be cast into outer darkness where there's wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth, says Jesus. That is to be without the presence of Almighty God and to bear the wrath of God forever alone. Alone. You don't want them, you don't get them. Darkness. That's the deceit injected into the human heart. It's a dreadful curse. I won't have him. I don't want him. He will not invade my life. I will rule my life. Sad place to be. So that's a lie that leads us to mistrust and hide from God, and along with that pitiful attempt to create or cover ourselves from God's gaze, how foolish that is. The one who sees all and knows all. He knows the, 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 the core of your being. He knows what you think, when you think it, how you think. As a Christian, is that not why you confess your sins continually? 
I don't know how many times I confess to God in any given day just because of what's going on up here. Much of this noodle of mine, which is empty half the time. So I need to fill it with the truth of God. And when it's filled with the truth, when, when, when foreign thinking enters in or is birthed from my, my fallen side, I'm going to confess it and repent of it, I hope. Amen? That's why we confess. That's why we repent. It's God's grace revealing to us, uh, this isn't my line of thinking. This is foreign to who I am in you, for he dwells and dwells those who are his. Amen? So here the Lord, he calls for Adam. Where are you? Okay, friends, he's not seeking information, by the way. Okay, where are you? He doesn't have his hand over his brow, squinting his eyes, going, wow, where are you? I lost sight of you. No. This is God coming to the man, calling for confession. Where are you? Uh, we heard you coming, we were naked, we hit ourselves. Naked? Who told you you were naked? Naked? Where'd you learn that word? Not from me. You were covered in my glory. Who told you you were naked? Notice, his questions come in the form of prosecuting attorney. He's, this is an interrogation. Where are you? Adam, where are you? Have you eaten from the forbidden tree? What, as though he didn't know? Of course he knows. Notice the response. Sin that leads to more sin. Sin upon sin. Transgression upon transgression. Blame shifting is born here in the Garden of Eden. We're all blame shifters. Verse 12, the woman whom you gave me. Blame it on the wife. She gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Flip Wilson, proof that Flip Wilson didn't invent, the devil made me do it. What was her name? Jezza, Jezza what? What was that character he played? Geraldine. Geraldine. The devil made me do it. Remember that? Flip Wilson, 1970s. Anyway, it comes from here. The devil made me do it. Friends, Adam's at fault. Adam is at fault, having refused his responsibility in the first place, and that is not exercising his God-given dominion over the serpent. Right here, he neglected headship responsibility. When did he lose dominion? The moment he refused to exercise it. That's when. Dominion over every creature. And he refused to exercise that which God gave him. That's when he lost dominion. And it led to what? The satanic deception of his wife. And he was with her. And she gave, she ate, and she gave to him, and he ate. 
And he makes these lame excuses for his sin. Friend, gentlemen, brothers, friends, the role and responsibility of men is the same today. Men, the role and responsibility is the same to this day. And that is we are called to stand and guard against the serpent's influence from entering our spheres of influence, beginning with our home. That's our duty. And too often, men will fall prey to the pressure They don't want the pressure. They throw up their hands. They expect their wives to lead. And then their energy, the man's energy, is exhausted by complaining. It's the woman you gave me. The woman you gave me. And men to this day, they'll they'll complain about the church. They'll complain about leadership within the church. They'll blame They'll criticize, they'll, they'll whimper, and eventually the wife, if she takes over this role of responsibility, she's not created for that role. She's not created, she grows weary, perhaps she checks out, now everybody's checked out. Men, you, your wife, your children are being discipled. They are being catechized. The question is, By whom? The word of God or the culture? One of the other. We're called to stand. Delegated responsibility from God. So God, he presents the evidence. And then um, he, he steps, if you will, behind the bench and he takes on the role of judge. From uh, where are you, have you eaten, to the moment of sentencing. He pronounces his curse. Notice to the woman, jump forward to verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. I will multiply your pain, not only in in childbirth, but also, friends, this has to do with with that that deep-seated pain of alienation that sometimes comes to men and women, husbands and wives, in raising their children. Bearing them, not just giving birth, but bearing them and raising them up. And because of this cosmic war of enmity for which we'll look at, many times they they suffer that pain. An alienation. In that relationship. And notice it's a distorted relationship with her husband. Your desire will be for your husband. It's not that she's there wringing her hands with with you know, a cloud over her, her, her little head and go, look at my wonderful husband, he's my hero. No, your desire in the fall will be to usurp his position of authority. And he shall rule over you. In the fall, he, 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 instead of serving you and lifting up, he'll want to oppress you, perhaps. Things like that. All a consequence of the fall. To the man... He said, verse 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat 
plants of the field. Uh, thus the reason Jesus and God's providence was crowned with a crown of thorns, the consequence of sin. Here he is. The, 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 the labor God ordained to be joyous, a, a part of our fundamental call, calling now becomes toilsome, causes weariness. By the sweat of your brow, he says. And then the crown of it all, verse 19, you will return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Consequence of this transgression. So here he is, the man made to, to tend, tend to, to, to enjoy, to expand, to have dominion over the garden temple of God, the garden, now the man becomes up being part of. Back to the dust you shall go. It now has dominion over him, so to speak. So they're, they're, they're exiled, they're, they're excommunicated from the tree of life. The ground now exercised dominion over the man. From the earth he was taken, back to the earth he shall now return because of this transgression. So here we have a dark and dreary picture of life, this side of Eden, verse 15. Notice, in it, we see a glimmer of hope. The first promise in this is to Satan. First part of the curse. The first pronouncement of judgment, if you back up, is given to the serpent, Satan, the ancient dragon. First, the creature that, that he used is, is cursed, some physical reptile, on your belly you shall go, you shall eat dust. Picture of victory, of, of conquering another. We still use it today. I'm going to grind you. We use it in the sports where we're going to grind you to dust. So here's a graphic metaphor of defeat, and of shame. Also, this creature will be disdained and feared by men. What do we fear more than snakes? Spiders? I don't know. <laughs> so more than that judgment is the non-corporeal, that is the spiritual being that indwelt this viper, and it's Satan himself. Verse 15, we see God's undiminished sovereignty over the whole deal. Just as God said in the beginning, let there be light, and there was light, here after the fall, we see just as much power, just as much authority when the Lord God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Enmity, warfare. And across all ages, a terrible conflict between two classes of people, all of humanity, fall into one of two categories. Seed of the serpent, seed of the woman, one or the other. Offspring of the woman, offspring of Satan. Either you're in the grip of Satan's deceit, or you are an heir of the redeeming grace of God. Two categories in life. You're in or you're out. You've been made a friend of God or you're an enemy of God. You're an enmity with God or peace has been made through the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's one or the other. That's it. 
And between those two groups, God says there will be perpetual enmity. There's going to be warfare between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan throughout time. And as we read the pages of scripture, do we not see this over and over again? It won't be long and we'll see that enmity between Cain and Abel, enmity. Noah will be mocked and rejected by his generation, enmity. We will see it between Isaac and Ishmael, enmity. Jacob and Esau, Israel and the nations, the church and the world, enmity, enmity, enmity. God says, I put it there. No wonder, centuries later, that Satan will incite King Herod shortly after the birth of Jesus, within two years of the birth of Jesus, ordering the murder of all baby boys two years old and under to be slaughtered in and around Bethlehem. See the woman. Satan was expecting him ever since this promise in the Garden of Eden, right there in chapter 3. Remember in Matthew 3, John the Baptist is out baptizing calling Israel to repent. The Pharisees and the Sadducees come out. And in order to describe them, John sees right through them. He sees their hypocrisy. He knows what they're about. And, in, and he goes directly to Genesis 3.15, and he refers to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, religious leaders of the day, as what? Vipers, snakes, enemies of the kingdom of God. Right there. Same thing in John 8, 41. We saw it this morning in Sunday school. You, you Pharisees, you know who your daddy is? The devil. The devil's your daddy. Abraham's not your father. Satan's your father. A murderer from the beginning. A liar from the beginning. That's your daddy. God's not. So here, at the dawn of human history... We have divine insight granted to us that for the life of a child of God, it's going to mean conflict. So friends, don't tell people who are outside of Christ, come to Jesus and all your troubles will go away because you're lying to them, meaning troubles in this life. The greatest problem you have is that you're on the way to hell. That's only solved in Christ. So in that sense, yes. You know, you know, Christianity, they, it's communicated as though it's just happy trails. No problems. Jesus is going to fix all your trouble. Now, that indeed he will do, praise God, when he makes all things new. Now, he's already begun to make all things new, but we won't taste the fullness thereof until we enter glory. That is when you leave this body and enter into his presence. And you'll taste the fullness thereof. And not even then, because you won't taste it fully and completely until your body's raised from the grave, joined back with your spirit, and you have a glorified body just like our risen Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll ever be learning about the glories of the cross. And as I've said before, you know how exciting it is when you learn something, you just want to share it with everybody? You'll be learning for all eternity because he's infinite. Infinite. This first Christmas text, which we'll see in a moment, 
points us to Jesus Christ. You probably already see it. It is also a declaration of war. We don't want to miss that. So that kind of cuts through the tinsel and the lights and the mistletoe. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> this is warfare. There is a conflict. It's a spiritual battle. This is life in Christ. This is a life in the promised child, the offspring of the woman, increasing conflict. He experienced it. You don't think you, you will? If he suffered, we certainly will suffer for his name's sake. But we have hope that the world does not have. So notice at this moment, of judgment, there's glorious hope. Here's what we call seed hope. Seed, singular. Offspring, singular. He. Verse 15. If you don't have a star by Genesis 3.15, you want to put a star there, if you write in your Bible. This is, this is what the whole Bible is unfolding. The entirety of Scripture unfolds this promise. You see the conflict throughout. This is why Christians are beheaded, and so on. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Bruise, the word shuf. It's a word that has two different meanings and that's the intention here. It can mean to batter. It can mean to punch. It can mean to pound on. It can mean to lunge. And it can mean to destroy, crush. It's like the word beat. You, 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 you can pound you can punch, and it also means to defeat. You think of a boxer. Think of a boxer who lands numerous punches. He beats on his opponent, but he loses most of his fights. He punches himself out, beating on his opponent, on his opponent but in the end, his, his opponent knocks him out, beats him, although he had, been ta he had taken a beating. Here, Satan will lunge at, punch at, beat on, and bruise the heel of the one promised, but ultimately, the one promised will beat, that is, destroy the head of the serpent, Satan, that ancient foe. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. That is the ultimate offspring, born of a woman, born of a virgin. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name God with us, Emmanuel. He will be born, he will live a sinless life, he will offer himself as a sacrifice for many. No one takes my life, I lay my life down, Jesus said, as a substitutionary sacrifice for many. He will be crucified, he will die, he will be buried, he, he will have been beaten on, pounded, bruised, it looks like he's been beat but he'll be raised from the dead and he will beat the enemy. Through his humiliation, 
through his suffering, through his beating, his bruising, by way of death on Calvary's cross. We just finished Mark's gospel. should be fresh in our minds. He conquers Satan. He throws the final blow, the serpent of old, his most powerful weapon, which is death that originated back in the Garden of Eden, is now destroyed. He's conquered sin and death. So though you may fear, as I said a couple weeks ago, how you will die, in Christ, you do not have to fear death because he's conquered death. So to be absent from this body for the Christian is to be present with the Lord. Now, it's fascinating how Genesis 3 ends. Verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowledge, in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Can you imagine living forever as a sinner? Oh, how miserable. Oh, the, so this is mercy. Mercy. I can't live with myself, let alone half y'all. <laughs> Seeing if you're attentive. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming, a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of what? Life. Powerful, angelic beings set as guard so that they cannot re-enter into the garden temple of God and partake from the tree of life. So there's a veil set between holy God and fallen man. Years later, through the offspring of the woman, that is the nation of Israel, God would have them build a tabernacle that represented his presence among his people. There was the holy place. Only priests could enter there. There was the holy of holies. Only one high priest could enter there but once a year so as to atone for his own sin as well as the sins of the people he represented. And in between the holy place and the holy of holies was a, a veil, a curtain. Embroidered upon the curtain was cherubim. Guarding the way back. A large curtain separating the way with the image of these cherubim, these powerful, mighty angels that guards the presence of holy God and at the same time protects the people from the holiness of God, for God's holiness is consuming. You'll die. You'll die. So the presence of God in that regard is a good thing and a bad thing. So he sets up a veil, a, protect, a, protection, a protective area and mediators, priests under the old covenant. Jesus comes and he fulfills all that. Prophet, priest, and king. He is our great high priest. So to get back to the garden, there must be one before whom the cherubim bow down. One who will risk the pain. He will risk the suffering. He will risk dying, facing the judgment due to Adam's sin, but he would have to come as another Adam, a man, the last Adam, the second Adam. 
Look at 1 Corinthians 15. I always tell myself, I know I've said this before too, I'm going to just speak calmly today. <laughs> like I do in Sunday school. Like, just like this. Thus it is written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Jesus. It is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man, Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, Jesus. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven for all those who are in Christ and only those in Christ. You will see him as he is, and when you see him as he is, you will then be like him. Because he came to redeem back everything that the first Adam plunged into sin. By becoming sin, having never what? Sinned. He becomes a curse. Jesus became a curse. Cursed is anyone who hangs upon a tree to set us free from the curse. So the only way back into the temple garden, that is the only way back into the glory, the glorified presence of God, that is heaven, is through the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, Jesus the Christ who is the Son of God, the last Adam. It's Jesus alone who fulfills Zechariah's promise. I will smite the shepherd. God says, I will smite the shepherd. I will smite my shepherd. Wounded, Isaiah tells us, for the transgressions, our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. It was the will of the Father to bruise the Son. God bruised his Son, made him an offering for our sins. Remember when God, after Adam's sin, called Adam out? We just heard about it, what, a half hour ago? Adam, where are you? That was to draw out a confession of sin. Instead of confessing, he attempts to, to shift the blame. It's the woman you gave me who gave me the forbidden fruit. She's guilty. Condemn her. That's really what that is. Condemn her. Condemn the woman. Let me live. And then when it comes to Eve, she, she blames it on Satan. Jesus, the second Adam, the better man, says they are guilty. Condemn me to set them free. Condemn me. And on the cross, Jesus cried out, it is finished. And the curtain at that moment, the curtain separation was torn from the top to the bottom. Embroidered upon that curtain, cherubim. Entry into the presence of God. So now, based on the crushing work of Satan... You can enjoy real fellowship with God. And in the fullest sense, the day you die, portal to heaven is all death is for the believer. Entry 
into the glorified presence of God. So Adam and Eve, um, in their shame, you know, made feeble, feeble coverings for their nakedness. They try to cover themselves with fig leaves, but God will ultimately provide a covering for those who are in sin, and that is his son. He's your covering. Faith and trust in Jesus, he's your covering. He is your righteous cloak, returned by way of grace. Glory of God. So this is it. This human predicament is why we celebrate Christmas. Right here, the promise. When Adam ate, we ate. When he rebelled, we rebelled. When his innocence was lost, ours was lost. His shame, our shame. By faith and trust in the last Adam, Jesus Christ, his righteousness is our righteousness, and only in Christ is anyone declared righteous. So this text is, is calling us home to the joy, the glory, the grace, the kindness, the goodness, and the love of God the Father in sending his Son promised the moment man fell. Christmas is a time to rejoice. Christmas is a time to come home. The question is, are you home? Repent and believe, and you shall be saved from the judgments that, that is due because the Son of God bore judgment for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Christmas story. We thank you for the Christmas promise long, long ago. You were there to declare your promise, the crushing of Satan's head by the bruising of your son. Thank you that we'll never taste death, we'll never be judged for our sin, and for anyone here who, for the first time, um, this makes some kind of sense, I pray that you'll lift the veil and change their heart and grant them the grace to believe and entrust themselves to you fully and completely in the substitutionary sacrifice of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the last Adam. Amen.